Well, we've been talking uh, for a few months now about what it looks like for a Christ follower to live and not only live the life, but love the life as well. In fact, since September, since the middle of September, that's been the theme. That's been the subject uh, that, we have, uh, that we have been on. And, and I want you to understand that the principles that we have learned in this series, they are critical to our spiritual growth and development. I think for some of us, we don't recognize that. I said when we started the middle of September that I think it's so easy for us to study on topics like this, have a series like this, and for those of us that have known Jesus for a long time, me since I was age nine, and I'm 45, so for 36 years I've known Jesus as my Savior, and it's so easy for me to look at those principles and, and even for me to study them and think, well, I know those things. And those things are just the, the basics of the Christian life. Yeah, they are the basics of the Christian life. But it's amazing that for many of us, the reason we fail to accomplish the purpose God has for us on this planet is because we do not take care of the very basics. Those things which may seem so simple and yet are so critical to our spiritual growth and development. And so these things have been crucial. They've been critical. I hope that you haven't sat there, if you've known Jesus for a long time like me, and said, well, I, I know those things, and just kind of flip me off, or, or kind of get in the Bible, and just kind of, you just kind of read something else during that time, thinking, ah, turn him off for a while, I'm going to read here and let God speak to me about something new. You know, for many of us, it is not our need to know more truth, it's to do more with what we already know to be truth. And I hope that you found this series to be helpful. And I got to thinking the last uh, few weeks, uh, in our staff meetings, we've been talking about this. So here's the question. As we get to the end of the series, maybe you're asking yourself one of two questions. Either you're sitting here and maybe you've been challenged with something or you will be today and you think, well, what would it look like for me to change? What would it look like for me to be different than I have been up till this point in my life. Or maybe you've made a decision and you've said, boy, I'm going I'm to start reading God's word. I'm going to start sharing my faith. I'm going to start giving back to God a portion of what he's blessed me with rather than spending it all on myself. You've made those decisions and you're starting on that journey, but I can tell you what's going to happen if what happens to you happens to me on a regular basis, and that is the best intentions that I have. At some point, I begin to fall off the wagon. How do I make myself right again? How do I come back into that sweet spot, that place where God wants me to be so that I can accomplish his purpose for my life? In his book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley writes that the church's problem is in the misconception, he says, that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. Did you get that? He wrote, it's the greatest misconception in the church amongst Christians that we can add Christ into our lives but not subtract sin. In other words, that we can just kind of paste Jesus on the side of us. We can confess him as our Lord and Savior, as Jesus Christ, and yet not subtract sin out of our lives. It's the greatest misconception, he says. It's a change in belief without a change in behavior. And if there's no change in behavior as a result of you, what you believe, I would submit to you that you need to check what you believe. Because when you really believe something, it impacts, it influences, it changes your life. 
And really, that's what this series has been all about. What it means to live and love the life, do an evaluation, change what needs to be changed if you've been convinced of the truth of God's Word. Now, what kind of changes need to take place? Well, you'll humor me for a moment, but since I was the only one in my study that was preparing to speak to you this week, I just wrote down several things, all right? Here are some things that, that as I look at my own life, as I look at the lives of, of people that I interact with, people that I love, people that I care about, as I, as I said, do an, do an internal inspection in my own life, here, here's some areas. I, I think for a lot of us, relationships need to change. Relationships. Maybe it's relationships with your coworkers, those people that, that you interact with probably more than you interact with any other people. Maybe it's those relationships. Maybe it's, inter, it's uh, relationships with your kids, with your spouse. Speaking of spouse, maybe it's your marriage. It's amazing to me how many people walk through these doors week after week after week, and they sit down. I'm talking to you husbands and wives. They sit down. They sit down next to each other, or sometimes they put their kids uh, in between them because they don't want to sit next to each other. Now, that's not to say if you get your kids in between you that there's something wrong this morning, okay? Some of you, you young couples, you're going, I don't have any choice. You know, I don't have any kid to put in next to me. Well, have some, and then, then you'll have that opportunity. But it's amazing how many come in and yet the whole week has been miserable, has been horrible, even up to the point that you got to that front door out here. That needs to change. That needs to change. I say to you on a regular basis, and I say to you again, if you find yourself in relationships like that, if you find yourself in a marriage like that, that is not God's intention for your life. You are missing, I believe, one of the greatest blessings in the world. And that is to have a right relationship with your husband or your wife. And that is one of the reasons why we exist here at Northwest. If you need help, we want to help you. You say, you really don't want to know. Well, you know, it gets messy. You get involved in some of my issues, you'll get messy too. That's just the way it is, right? That's just the way it is. When people are sinful, it gets messy and it gets, but that's what we're about. We're about helping you see God do something incredible in your marriage relationship. Another area that I think needs to change for many of us, and this would probably be almost all of us this morning, is this English world that we call apathy. Apathy. Webster defines it as a lack of interest or passion, a lack of emotion, a lack of concern. And I think for many of us that marks our lives. I was talking to a man not too long ago that was uh, so incredibly disappointed at his kids and their lack of passion for life. And I kind of looked at him and thought, maybe your reason of lack of passion in your kid's life, lack of seeing that there, is because you lack passion yourself. A good question for us to ask ourselves. For many of us, we have no desire to study the Word. There's apathy there. We have little or no desire to serve. When this service ends a few moments from now, You'll simply walk out the door, head to your car, having just assumed that everything that happened here this morning just happened. It just popped up. And there'll be a few men and women that'll stay here on the stage and out there in children's ministry and in other places. And for many of you, you're doing other things. You're serving. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about those of you who have bought into this idea that it's okay to be apathetic not to have any interest, passion, or emotion, or concern literally about anything in your life. 
How about little or no desire to be involved in relationships or community? We're going to be talking with you a lot in the new year about life groups. In fact, I'm going to forewarn you that some of you are on a list right now. It's a good list. It's a good list because we haven't identified you as being in a life group. Now, you can love Jesus and be right with Jesus and not be part of a life group. Please hear me say that. Uh, we, we abhor legalism here at Northwest, all right? So we're not saying, hey, if you want to be a good little Christian, then you need to make sure you get in a life group. We're, we're not saying that. But if your goal in avoiding a life group is avoiding relationships, avoiding that sense of community, that needs to change in your life. How about what we talked about uh, last week, the apathy that leads to no desire to share your faith? After all, why would you share something that's not really working for you? Apathy. How about managing, management of your finances? Maybe you're in total disarray financially right now. Even right now, you've had a week in which you look at that caller ID and you try to figure out who it is because you don't want to answer the phone because you know it's somebody else that wants what you owe them. Maybe you can't make your house payment. Maybe you've had a tough time even buying groceries. And in this particular season of the year, thinking about Christmas, thinking about gift giving, you can't do any of that because your finances are in such disarray. Maybe it's not that God hasn't given you enough. Maybe it's just that you're not doing what's right with what he's given you. You're mismanaging your finances. And in some cases, robbing God. You're not invested in those things which are eternal, those things which matter. For many of us, I believe there needs to be change with regards to addictions in our lives. You say, okay, well, you can talk about those things because that's not me. Because you think I'm just simply talking about alcohol, or I might be talking about uh, tobacco. Uh, Well, I am talking about those things. If you have an addiction to those things, that needs to change. That needs to change. But you know, you can also be addicted to food. You can be addicted to the internet. You think, well, you're talking about pornography. Well, you can certainly be addicted to pornography on the Internet, but you can spend so much of your time on the Internet, so much of your time surfing all over the place and on social uh, media websites that it takes everything, every amount of energy that you could expend on other things away. Well, if those things are true of you, then you're believing a lie. You're believing a lie. You're not managing those things. They're controlling you. And as a result of controlling you, the enemy is controlling you. And that needs to change. Now, if you're still with me, hear me this morning and write this down on your notes. Change always begins with repentance. Change always begins with repentance. If there is no repentance, there is Never any real lasting change. Change always begins with repentance. Now, let me give you a few things that repentance is not, okay? What, what repentance is not. Number one, repentance is not religious. You say, well, how can that be true? If we're talking about my spiritual life, how can repentance not be religious? Well, well follow me. The religious person says what Jesus said. Uh, talked about in Luke chapter 18 when he was uh, talking to the Pharisee and the publican. Do you remember that, that passage? It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. <laughs> well, there's the first problem, right? He was praying this to himself. 
He said this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterous, or even like this tax collector who evidently was standing beside him. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Verse 13 of chapter 18 says, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see the difference? One of them is a religious repenter. Here's what religious repenters do. They simply do this. They see your sin, but they refuse to acknowledge their sin. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe some of us are those people. I can see everything about you that needs to change, but not about me. I'm unhappy about your sin because your sin happens not to be a problem for me. So I'm unhappy about your sin, and I'll confess your sins for you. A Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like others. The real repenter says, I can't even look towards a holy God. Repentance is not simply just a religious experience. Number two, and depending on your background, this may or may not be a problem for you, but repentance is not equal to penance. It's not equal to penance. Penance says, let me repay you. If I repay you for what I've done, I'll feel better. That's the husband that commits adultery and comes home and says, I slept with this woman, here's a diamond ring, I'll never do it again. Penance. Penance is essentially legalism. C.J. Mahaney says this, he defines legalism as seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. That's counterfeit repentance. It's not real. It's penance, but it's not repentance, okay? I'm sure many of you have heard the story about the man who sent $2,000 to the IRS. He attached a letter inside that said enclosed as a payment for $2,000. I've not been totally honest on my income tax returns for several years, and I cannot sleep, so I decided to send a check. If I still cannot sleep after mailing this payment, I'll be sending the remainder of what I owe. Now, I submit to you today that that is not repentance. But for many of us, if you think, maybe it's not with the IRS, maybe it's with your spouse, maybe it's with a coworker, maybe it's with your kids, that's a lot of times what we do. I'm going to do this and see if I can get by with it and salve my conscience. If I can, then I'm going to move on. If I can't, maybe I'll take one step further. That's counterfeit. That's not real. That's not change. Number three is simple sorrow. Simple sorrow. That means I simply shed a few tears or I say a few words that I don't really mean that may make me appear outwardly to be repentant. I've known people like this. I don't happen to be one of these people because I'm just not that emotional of a guy. Um, if, If you see me shed tears, you go, man, something big has happened to him. All right? Unless I just wet my fingers and start wetting my eyes like that. That's what I'm talking about here. It's simple sorrow. If I shed a few tears, if I say a few words, then I'm repentant. Or how about this? If I say I feel bad. You ever said this? I feel bad that I hurt you. Oh, yeah? You feel bad that you hurt me? I cry. I have a sad face. Whether I do it in front of you or I put up my email, you know, little sad face. You do those sad faces. Or a text. Now you can do a text like that in one of those, what do they call them, emoticons? 
It'll come up, and it's a real sad, real sad face. You don't have to do it the old-fashioned way now. That's simple sorrow. That's not biblical repentance. Number four, it's not mere confession. I've shared this with you before, but both of our boys at some point in their lives, and I think this probably happens to a lot of kids, bought into this idea of repentance that it's mere confession. It's just simply me acknowledging. It's me saying what? Sorry. I can remember this happening so many times with our boys when they were little. Something major would happen. They would spill something major on the carpeting. And they would go, Dad told me that a real man takes responsibility. Sorry. Sorry. Can we go throw the football? The carpet's kind of wet and messy now. Can we go throw the football? You're looking at them going, what the? I mean, hey, do you realize you just ruined the carpeting? That stain will never come. I know I said I'm sorry. It's mere confession. It's oftentimes equated with the word sorry, but no change of behavior. Remember that. Number five is blame shifting. Blame shifting. Many of us are good, good about that. This happens in a lot of counseling I do. It used to happen all the time with teenagers. I'd have high school students in my office, and we'd talk about the reason why Adam's parents sent him into my office. And I second, did I, did I say that? Adam, Adam was never in my office. He was a good student. The reason why the student was there, and, 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 and I, they would say, well, yeah, I, I did that, but... Anytime you hear somebody say, yes, I'm sorry, or yes, I did that, but, when that but is added in there, that is not true repentance. True repentance is not marked by blame shifting. Yes, I did it, but here's the reason why I did it. Or, yes, I did it, but you did this. You ever been in a situation where you had to take responsibility, you had to own something that you did, but you knew the other person did something as well? You ever been in that situation? I remember many years ago, I was in front of a pastor that I worked with, and I had done something that I shouldn't have done, admittedly so, and and I went into his office and I took responsibility for it. And I was about 29 years old. I remember it very well. Not 30, I was 29 years old. And he had been just as wrong as I was. In fact, I would say more so because he was my boss. And he should act better than me, right? I'm a 29-year-old youth pastor. It's just what they do. And so I confessed what I had done to him, and I'd gone in there thinking, what if he doesn't? And I wanted so badly to say, I'm sorry for what I did. Please forgive me for this. But I didn't. And I got done with my confession, and he said, I accept your apology. Thanks for coming in. And I thought, in, inside I'm going, how dare you? You're just as wrong. Now, if I would have said that, or even in my heart, I had to work through that, because real repentance is not blame shifting. Yes, I did this, but you did this. It's also, number six, not minimizing things. Let me go back to blame shifting for just one minute because I don't want to miss this. I'm convinced that most of our problems with other people, by the way, relationally, would be settled if we we would simply change us rather than trying to change someone else. 
If we confessed our sin and we changed us, if we took responsibility for our actions rather than seeking what we believe to be our rights, if we just fix us, because we can't fix the other person, right? We can't do that. But we can fix us. We can make a decision that we're going to go in the right direction. We're going to behave in a Christ-like way. But for many of us, we blame shift. Minimize. We minimize. Minimizing sin in that kind of repentance, or which is not real repentance, which is counterfeit repentance, says this. Yes, I did it, but at least I did not do this. That's the high school student that comes home and says, uh, yes, I was late. I know you said to be home at midnight and I'm here at 1 a.m. Yes, I was late, but I have not been drinking. What? So that makes it okay that you were late. That's the person that minimized. And then number seven is excuse making. This is probably my all-time favorite myself. Yes, I did it, but I did it for this reason. I want you to understand what caused me to do that. And for many of us, in fact, I hear these things as a, as a pastor very often. Yes, I did it, but it's because of the home that I grew up in. If you could have known my father, if you could have known my mother, if you would have had to live with my siblings, you'd understand why I did that. I never knew my parents. They weren't good parents. I was abused when I was a child. Now, I I don't minimize any of those things, but there has to become a time in your life when you take responsibility for your actions and your repentance is not marked by excuse-making. Repentance that has any of those characteristics, hear me, and I want you to hear me very well today because many of you, husbands, wives, teenagers, all of us would do well to understand this that repentance that is marked by any of those characteristics is in fact not real repentance. It's counterfeit. We've listened to politicians say it for years. I listened to the debate last night between the Republican candidates and I heard it so many times. Yes, I did, but. A minimizing, excuse-making. Repentance that's marked by any of those characteristics is not real repentance. It's counterfeit. Now hear this, if you don't understand what to do when you sin, let me make sure that you understand this. If you don't understand what you need to do when you sin, you'll ruin your life and you'll destroy your relationships with other people. This is a big deal this morning. For many of you, this could be that changing moment when you finally understand what it means for me to repent, what it means for me to move in a new direction. This could be one of those life-defining moments for you if you allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you this morning. I really believe that to be true. Because if you don't understand what to do with sin in your life, and there is going to be sin in your life, if it's not there right now, boy, I'd love for you to stand up and have the ushers give you a whizzy button. Because you'd be one of the very, very few people here uh, today that's like that. For many of us, we're dealing with sin right now, and we are going to deal with sin until Jesus comes back. And if you don't learn how to deal with sin in your life, you will ruin your life. But even greater than that, not will you only ruin your life, but you will ruin potentially the lives of other people, many of which you really love and care about. It's a big deal. Charles Spurgeon writes, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. 
He said, it is in fact a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. J.I. Packer went a little bit further when he said this, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. That's repentance. Now what happens if you ignore sin and you stay the same? Proverbs chapter 28, if you have your Bible, you could turn there just real quickly. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says this. He who conceals his transgressions, to conceal is just one of those Bible words that means to, to hide it. Transgressions will mean anything that we just talked about or anything that I haven't mentioned that you know violates the holiness of God. He who covers up his sins will not prosper. You're not going to prosper. You say, well, what does that mean? You mean I might not have as much as I could have had? You mean I, I might, I might be going to get this car and I'm, I'm going to have to have that, that car there? Uh, or we oftentimes think about prosperity in terms of things that I have, but I believe that the thrust of the passage here is you're not going to enjoy the life. You're not going to enjoy the life that God intended for you to enjoy. But the writer goes on to say, but he who confesses and forsakes will find compassion. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 about King David. We don't have time to go there to that passage this morning there in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and, and chapter 12 as well. But we are going to look at that repentance. You remember David's sin with Bathsheba. The passage starts out by when kings go out to war, and the question immediately is asked of why isn't David out to war? David decided to stay home. And as a result of staying home, he went out and walked on the top of his house. Now, I'm glad I can't do that at my house. My roof is too steep, and so you're never going to see me walking around my house. So I'll never fall into this same temptation anyway. But it says he went out and he was walking around on the roof, and lo and behold, he looked on the other roof. Now, what the other lady was doing naked on top of her roof, taking a bath, I don't understand all that either. It's confused me since I was a little boy, all right? But when David was looking around on his roof and he saw Bathsheba, he wanted her. He had a sexual, physical relationship with her. And she gave birth to a child. David said, here's what happens if I sin and I don't confess, if I ignore it. He said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity or if I hide iniquity, sin in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. That's a pretty big deal, right? God won't hear me. You say, well, I'm sure there's some theological explanation to that, isn't there? I mean, it's not literally that he won't hear you. No, it's that he ignores us. It's amazing to me. You ever watch a movie when there's some really, really bad guy and he's doing something really, really stupid that he could die and all of a sudden he cries out to God, God, save me, don't let this happen. And you're going, he ain't listening, okay? David said, if I regard, if I ignore sin in my life, God will not hear me. Oftentimes also, there are consequences not only for you, but for other people as well. Dads, do you recognize some of the poor choices that you're making right now? Maybe for some of you that you are making, even as we sit here this morning, you've made them over the weekend, whatever that is that's going on in your life, do you know some of those things don't have consequences just for you or just for your wife, but your kids and potentially your grandkids as well? 
I wish King David could be sitting here next to me on the stage this morning. That would have boosted attendance, wouldn't it, if I could have said, hey, King, King David's going to be here. He's not, but if he were here this morning and I could say, hey, David, that little deal you had going on with Bathsheba when you were walking around on the roof, you saw her naked and you had sex with her. Hey, how'd that work out for you? See, he as a father learned that oftentimes it's not just consequences for me, but it's consequences not only for my children, but for generations to come if I ignore my sin. That sin that we hold on to, that we cherish, that we love, that amuses us, at the end of the day is a violation of the holiness of God. And that's what we have to wrap our arms around this morning. It's those things that required God to send his son Jesus to suffer and bleed and die on an old cross for our sin. It's those things. David went further in Psalm 32 when he said, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. That was his conscience. David, you know what you've done. You know what you've done. You violated the holiness of God. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. You you can send her, her husband to the battle lines and he can be killed, but it doesn't change the fact that God knows you've sinned. And his conscience bothered him. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning. You try to block it out of your mind, and yet at the most inopportune moment, something comes across. David said, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I was useless, David said. There wasn't Anything good that was happening in and through my life, I was wasting myself. That's the consequence of sin. Some of you wonder why you're ineffective at work. You wonder why you're ineffective at school. You wonder why it seems like your life is meaningless. So many times it is the chastening hand of God upon our lives that's saying, change, 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 repent, move in a new direction. Reminded about the story of the prodigal in Luke chapter 15. You remember the story? Man had two sons and the younger of them came to his father and he said, Father, give me my half of the estate. He began to buy into a lie. And that is the idea that if I had this money, if I had these possessions, and I could be away from you, old man, and I could go over there with those people, I could really enjoy my life. If I had a dollar bill for every teenager that I've sat with in my office over my years as a youth pastor that bought into the same lie that Satan whispered to them, it's better over there. If you can just somehow get yourself over there, that's where excitement, that's where joy, that's where satisfaction is found. So the father divided his wealth. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and he went on to a journey into a distant country. He believed a lie, and that lie was that if I get all this money and I go over there with those people, somehow my life will be better. Yet Proverbs 14, verse 12, and 16, 25, by the way, God repeated it, probably wanted us to understand this. There is a way that seems right to a man. Now, I don't like how sometimes Scripture uses that word man and forgets woman, okay? You have to understand that when it says man, 
You ladies can't just go, that's right. It's those men. That's blame shifting, okay? That's excuse making. There's a way that seems right to a man or to a woman, to a boy, to a girl, to a high school student, to a middle school student. There's a way that logically seems right to them. Satan has whispered it to them and they go, it makes sense. I'm going to go do that. But the end is destruction. That's what happens in the end. It's not nearly as fun and as exciting as Satan told you it was going to be. It's destruction. The story goes on to say, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. We can only begin to imagine what that means. Now when he'd spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. Duh. And he goes, I don't have any money left. He went to the ATM, you know, you're overdrawn, there's nothing there. Went to use the visa card, declined, you're over your limit. He was impoverished. Verse 15 says, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine, to feed the pigs. Which for a little Jewish boy, that's like really low, right? I mean, that's about as low as you get. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. That's the consequence of ignoring your sin, of believing a lie. Verse 20, though, says he came to his senses and he got up and he went to his father and he confessed, he repented. Here's the deal. Repentance is necessary because we have a tendency to rebel against that which we know to be true. That is the classic, I believe, biblical definition of rebellion. It is when I believe a lie. You think about it. Every area of sin in your life right now or that has been committed, or that will be committed, is a result of you believing a lie. Even if you were here this morning, and you simply had an addiction to food, and you say, well, that's not that big of a deal. You've bought into a lie. What's the lie? If I eat this food, I'll be satisfied. I'll feel good. It'll make me feel happy. And does it? It does for a short time, and then all of a sudden that feeling goes away, and you live with the consequence of that. It is, again, men, I hit this again. It is that inappropriate relationship that you have that Satan says, things aren't really good at home, so if you go over there and you spend a little bit of time with her, things will be better. And you believe a lie, and you go. And for a very short time, it feels really good. But eventually, payday comes, right? Repentance is necessary because we have a tendency to rebel against that which we know to be true. Rebellion is simply this. It is believing a lie. It's believing a lie. Now, let me give you, as we close, let me give you those things that repentance is. What is repentance? I'm going to give these things to you really quickly because it's really, really simple. Repentance is a collision of perception with truth. It's a collision of perception with truth. I begin to realize that what I've perceived and have become convinced of in my life is, in fact, a lie. It's not true. This is wrong. My perception has a collision with truth. I really hate that phrase. Just so you know, just give you a little heads up if you're ever talking with me. I use it at times, but I hate it. I hate it when I use it myself. I hate that phrase, and you know what I'm going to say. Perception is reality, you know. No, very often your perception is stupidity. My perception very often is ignorance. 
There's no truth to it whatsoever. I believe one of the greatest lies that Satan tells us is that. That's what I think. Therefore, it must be true. It's reality. Two plus two is seven. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I perceive it to be true. Yeah, balance your checkbook like that. Tell me how that works for you. Perception is not reality. Perception very often is us believing a lie. Believing that little whisper that we're told. Repentance is a collision of perception with truth. Number two, repentance is a consciousness of sin against God. It's not just being aware of the effect on me or others. It's a realization that my sin is is repulsive to a sinless, holy God. David said it. And he said it well in Psalm 51, verse 4, which his psalm is known as a psalm of repentance after his inappropriate relationship with Bathsheba. David writes this, Psalm 51, 4, against thee, and what? And thee only have I sinned. You see, when you and I come to the idea and we understand, we believe, to under, we believe truth and not the lie, we come out of rebellion and we believe truth, we understand that the greatest thing that happens when we sin is not the consequences on you or other people or how you feel. It is that we violated a holy God. And David got it. And I'll tell you this to be true in my own life. Once I realize that part of repentance, I don't care what you think about me. I really don't. That's why over the last several years, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to pursue this as a shepherd, to be real and honest and authentic with you. And I'm trying not to be real and honest and authentic with you um, before I've been real, honest, and authentic before God. And when I acknowledge to him my sin, it's very easy to acknowledge it to you. Because guess what? You're dirty, rotten, filthy sinners just like I am. How's that to make you feel good about yourself today? That's the truth, right? You say, I perceive I'm a good person. You perceive inappropriately. We're not. Scripture says we're desperately wicked. And apart from Jesus, we don't do good stuff. We got, remember, devil fruit hanging on us, not Jesus fruit. When I realize that my sin violates the holiness of God, what you think about me, I hope you'll forgive me but it really doesn't matter to me at the end of the day. Once I do business with him, and I sense that he's forgiven me, he's washed it clean, he's not keeping record of it anymore, if you can't do the same, that's your issue. Number three, repentance is simply a choice to agree with God and disagree with the enemy. It's a choice that you make. I'm going to challenge you today to do this. It's a choice that you make. I choose to repent. I'm making that choice. And then that leads, number four, to change. A change in direction, by the way. I make a choice to agree with God, and I move in a new direction. I was reading something this week in my preparation about a guy who said, who told his wife, Honey, don't worry about me. I'm going to do a 360. 
And she went, I'm, I'm not too sure I'm interested in that. Because 360, right, gets you right back where you were before. You need to do a what? You do a 180. That moves you in a new direction. You know what they say the definition of insanity is, right? It's to do the same thing in the same way and expect a different result. That's why Dr. Phil, that great theologian and biblical counselor, says so often, how's that working for you? You continue to do the same things. And as a result of doing the same thing, you have the same effect on your life and on the lives of people that you love and that you care about. Repentance is a change in direction. Not a 360, a 180. I'm moving in a new direction, fast. Which leads to number five. Repentance is a continuation in the right direction. True repentance is always marked over time. True repentance isn't just simply, sorry, I'm going to go this way until I want to go this way again. True repentance is a continuation. It's continuing to walk and live in truth. It doesn't mean that you don't stumble. It doesn't mean that you don't fall and have to go right back up to the top and say, what is repentance? I've got to agree with God. I've got to see this as God sees it, and I've got to move back again in the new direction. Change only happens when I'm convinced that the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain that comes with change. And let me just tell you this, to change and live the life and love the life is painful. I've said it to you so often. The greatest analogy is what Paul used when he talked with Timothy about physical training, right? I've said it to you, you've heard me say it before, if washboard abs, if I could just speak it, I'd have them. And I'd wear really tight-fitted shirts. So two junior high and high school guys would go, wow, what I'd do to have those 45-year-old abs. I would, would love that. And I'd go to the pool more often and not leave on my big baggy shirt. But guess what? They're not easy. I figured that out about 30 years ago. It isn't easy to look like that. you got to discipline yourself. It's painful to do those sit-ups, those crunches, all of that stuff. That's painful stuff. And that's why Paul used that analogy when he talked, about, talked to Timothy about disciplining himself to godliness. He said it's hard, it's difficult. But in the end, there's an awesome result that comes from pain. Change only happens when I'm convinced the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain that comes with change. And so to be like Jesus, you have to develop the mind of Christ. The New Testament calls it repentance. You repent when you change the way you think by beginning to think how God thinks and act how God would have you to act. Let me ask you this morning, are you ready? Are you ready for change? I hope at least a few of us will go out of here after this series and say, I really want to live and love the life when Jesus comes for me, whether that's a trumpet in the sky or whether I die and whether I die unexpectedly this week, I want him to find me living this life and not just living it kind of like a beaten down person, but loving this life so that I can influence my world for him. Change begins with repentance, agreeing with God and moving in a different direction. 
What do you need to change? I don't know. Maybe I hit on your sin this morning. Maybe I didn't. But I trust you'll think about these things today. Living and loving the life begins when I see who and what I am in the mirror and I repent. I agree with God and I move in a new direction.